Hi, folks. Before we get into the episode, I wanted to tell you about Design Museum Everywhere's annual meeting. Every year, we host an annual meeting. It's a public board meeting for the Design Museum community to come together for a conversation, looking back on the year and learning what's in store in the year ahead. You'll hear from staff and board members about programming and operations. We'll even talk to you about our finances. We're really opening up. This podcast is just one of Design Museum Everywhere's amazing programs. We have magazine, books, incredible exhibitions, and educational resources, and you'll hear about them all. We're all about bringing the transformative power of design to you. So if you like our show, then you can get to know more about what we do and how to become involved. It's on January 26th from 12 to 1 p.m. Eastern Time. For more details, check out our site at designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on Events. Hello, welcome to Design is Everywhere, the weekly podcast from the Design Museum. And welcome to the live podcast recording during our Workplace Innovation Summit. I'm your host, Sam Aquilano. I'm the founder and executive director of Design Museum Everywhere. Each week on our show, we tackle a different element of design and explore how it impacts our everyday lives. We always have the help of a new guest co-host who is an expert in their field, and we interview a guest about their work in design because design is everywhere. And so are we. This week, Design Museum Everywhere is hosting our Workplace Innovation Summit. It's a way for us all to connect, reflect, and reform on ideas centered around all things workplace design. This year, we are virtual, loving every minute of it. So we have a chance to record this episode live in front of you all on Zoom. So this episode, we're talking about allyship in the workplace, something I'm really interested to learn more about. We'll be tackling questions on how to be an ally and how diversity, equity, and inclusion each play a role in making a better workplace. Joining me today are two experts in learning, education, and organizations. We have Design Museum Everywhere's very own Diana Navarrete Rakakis and the Director of Learning from C-Space, Leah Ben-Ami. To start our discussion off, Diana is joining me as a guest co-host. Diana is the Director of Learning and Interpretation at Design Museum Everywhere. She has over 10 years of experience in museums across the United States a master's in art history from University of California, Riverside, and a commitment to principles of diversity, equity, and inclusion. At Design Museum Everywhere, Diana masterfully combines education with insight to make the Design Museum accessible and interactive. Her goal is to empower participants to confidently navigate their worlds. Diana, thanks for being here. Hey, absolutely. I'm telling you, I can hear you say that paragraph over and over and over again for the rest of my life. <laughs> yeah, every day I'm just going to call you and say, here we have Diana Navarrete Rakakis. I will say for our listeners, Diana is, it's like uh, Inception, how she teaches her workshops and you don't even realize you're learning while you're learning. It's, it's a lot of fun. Um, so excited to have you here because you're also such an expert in this topic and these topics, education and allyship, I feel like go hand in hand. So I wonder if we could just start off helping us and helping our listeners. How do you define allyship and how has this notion changed over time? I always like to start with the big question first, but I, I, of course, I've heard this, this term a lot more lately, right? With this sort mm -hmm. of, you know, the rebirth of civil rights movement with everything that's happened. So I really am hoping to like define it for our listeners. I'd say that allyship is when uh, you, as someone who has access to privilege and power, uses that access to privilege and power in partnership with those who don't to make equitable change. 
So it's, it's a lot of levels there, right? I think one of the first things I want to point out is like partnership, right? Like you're working with groups. You're not just kind of deciding that you know what's best and that you want to do the, you know, you, you have your heart in the right place. You want to do the best you can. But when you're doing it without talking to the communities that you're working with, then it's not going to be any good. Or the other one being kind of like realizing where you have power and privilege and how you can use that effectively. That's great. I do want to get into this performative aspect because I think there's probably people who are like, I'm an ally, like I'm doing it. So can you share some of that? Maybe jumping to like some examples of being a true ally. Maybe that'll help get us Mm. out of sort of like the performative aspects of it. Yeah. I mean, one thing that I've read recently, which I thought was a really interesting way of looking at it, is that unless someone is telling you that you're a great ally, like maybe you can't give that name to yourself. You'll know if you're doing great allyship work because people will give you that title and and they'll say that you're doing great work with them. And that's really special. I'll give an example from actually from our from our museum. So our graphic designer, Sophia, she's an amazing graphic designer. I'm constantly blown away by everything that she does. And one of the first things kind of when everything uh, was really coming to the forefront around the Black Lives Matter movement, she decided to volunteer her time and make sure that she could give as much of this access to the knowledge of graphic design, to her programs that she has that she's been able to pay for, to her access to technology, and lends that and lended all of that power and privilege and all of her wonderful knowledge to a group that was trying to get, I believe it was a DA, kind of moved out of a particular town, right? And so she partnered with a community organization in this town who was doing all of this work that knew the community. And she basically said, what can I do? Like, what can I give you to make this happen? Like, these are all of my skills. This is all that I have. How can I use this in service of this thing that you are, that you're spearheading? And she did a great job. Like she did, like she branded their whole thing. Like she made a whole website and you know, Sophia, so you know, it was great. (laughs) Um, And that, that is a really good example, I think of like, some concrete ways that people Mm -hmm. can do allyship yeah that's a really good example of like giving of your power privilege skills i'd love to get your sense of both the educational components and like doing the work and learning um and listening all play into being an ally basically trying to show people or our listeners like what that actually means like what the work behind it is yeah i think i mean something that I see come up over and over again is is the conversation around like expert. Like what does it mean to be an expert? How many things did you have to accomplish to become an expert? Like when do you reach that level of mastery in something? Mm-hmm. And then especially around topics of equity, diversity, and inclusion, you'll see a lot of kind of hesitance to claim that space because there's so much happening, right? Like you can't possibly know everything. You can't possibly kind of like take in all that under your belt. I think especially um, I, I see a lot of folks who work with organizational development and they are white and they are straight and they are cisgendered and they are every kind of dominant group identity that there could be in the book. And they'll sit there and they'll say, I really love this work. It's really important for me. Um, But when it comes down to it, like I'm always learning. I know that I could never possibly like intrinsically understand these things. And so I'm not going to call myself an expert in that because I don't think it makes sense, especially um, when there are so many other people who maybe do have those conversations, who do do have those experiences and could speak to them um, more, more specifically. In terms of kind of like education, I think, I mean, when it comes down to it, it's all about learning, especially here where the only way to know about 
the only way to know about the things you don't know is to go find that information, right? Like you can't possibly know what someone else's life is like and what kind of like all of this, all of these kind of historical things that are playing into it, unless you go look for that information and you make the work to educate yourself on that. And so that would be kind of like one level of education is that self-education. And then there's also kind of organizational education, right? Like, what does that look like for our organization? What does it mean for us as a team to do this? What, what is already out there uh, in terms of the way that people are doing this for teams? And how does that, does that apply or does that not apply for us, right? Because there isn't like a one size fits all answer to everything. That's not what equity is about, right? Equity is about looking at all of the different things that are happening and finding the right balance of strategies and approaches to create and kind of just like both create equity and then dismantle some of the inequity. So that's another level of education. And at that point, the biggest thing that you can do is to have conversations and listen to people <laughs> who can teach you about these things. Mm -hmm. This is also coming from a previous um, podcast guest, Elise, a young who said, this is, a, this is, this is not going to be something that you like check off, like the, finish the checklist. This is a right. lifetime worth of work. And I, when she made that point, so, you know, succinctly of like, this is a lifelong project. Right. Um, yeah. Just like, you know, people of color can't opt out of thinking about it. Like that's yeah. not how that works. <laughs> yeah. They can't and stop so, being a person of color. Right. It's a lifelong, so it's a lifelong. Like, well, yeah, yeah, exactly. So you have to opt in to always be thinking about it. To make sure that you're thinking, you know, to make sure that you're actually listening. Because I think the other thing that I hear a lot from folks is, okay, I want to, I, like, I'm, I'm totally in. I get it. Like, I want to listen. But, like, uh, where do I go listen? It's like, just look up. Like, there are a lot of, I mean, there, there are going to be a lot of people in the world who, like, don't actually want to have these conversations. And that's perfectly fine. You cannot expect, you know, that whoever is part of a non-dominant right? Like identity group to just like give up all of their time and suddenly become like the person who is going to teach you everything about their space. Like that's not what we're talking about. But if you actually were to like think about it and look around, you'll see that there are people already having these conversations. There are people who are already raising these concerns. I think especially organizationally, like you said, Sam, like thinking about the people who are your most, like who are the most junior in your space are usually having conversations about like, do you understand why we do that that way? It doesn't really make right. sense. Like, I don't know why we're like, that doesn't, it doesn't make sense. It's like harder for everyone. And like, we're totally ignoring this whole thing. And if you opted in to listening to those conversations and instead of expecting folks to bring you something to listen to, um, then you're opening up, you're opening yourself up to so much more kind of conversation. Yeah. And, and if you want to think about it that way, like data. Yeah, creating that space for that to be shared. It's absolutely huge. Thank you. Thanks for being here and sharing yeah, your course. perspective. Uh, listeners, you can learn more about Deanna's work on our website because <laughs> she's doing so much great work, uh, both teaching design to young people and adults. So visit designmuseumeverywhere.org. All right, stay with us and we'll bring Leah into our conversation after a quick break. If you like this podcast, then you will love Design Museum Everywhere. It's a museum that comes to you wherever you are. That's right. Design Museum Everywhere is all about making design education and inspiration accessible to everyone. Become a member today and join a global community of design thought leaders and change makers. Everyone can be a designer. We can all appreciate and advocate for the transformational impact that design can have. Membership starts at just $3 a month and you get access to virtual Design Museum live events, 
discounts, and our Design Museum magazine sent right to your doorstep. Just go to designmuseumeverywhere.org to join today, and your name will be listed in our next issue of Design Museum magazine, which will be sent to Design Museum members all over the world. That's designmuseumeverywhere.org to be part of this global community. We're back. Diana and I are joined by our special guest, Leia Ben-Ami. Leia is currently the Director of Learning at C-Space, a global customer agency in Boston. Previously, she was the Director of Academic Operations for the Lowell Institute School within the College of Professional Studies at Northeastern University. She completed the Doctor in Education program from Northeastern University, so Dr. Leia here, and has 12 years experience in higher education and nonprofit organizations. We're also very lucky, Leia is on the Design Museum Council. She is experienced in combining leadership in education to promote and foster an inclusive workplace. Leia, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. <laughs> oh, it's great, great to have you. Uh, I know we've ha been having these conversations in our committees and across the board, so it's wonderful to, I mean, I've got the two experts with me right here. What else can I ask for? Every so time you, you say expert, my blood pressure goes up. So thanks for that. <laughs> yeah. The stakes get higher. I love it. So similar kind of start for our segment with Deanna. I'm, I'm curious if you have anything to add about allyship just from like a definition standpoint, you know, defining it sort of from your perspective. I noticed that after the George Floyd um, protests in my hometown of Minneapolis, um, that I was getting overwhelmed with questions and comments and are you okay? And I'm so sorry. And Black Lives Matter. And I think I, I realized what an ally was when one of my um, many of my girlfriends, but one in particular came to me and was like, all right, are you okay? And I was like, you know what you can do? Can you talk to this other person who you know to tell them like what I need? Cause I, mm -hmm. I just can't. Um, yeah. And I think that was new and a new approach that I'd never taken with allyship, but sometimes I, I need some help from allies to help have the conversation and, and lo and behold, it might be, it might resonate better um, and it might land better. So I, that's something I, that's new, but I, I think overall allyship to me is really having somebody's back, um, whether they ask for it or not, um, making sure that you're intervening and doing something and not just sitting there and watching it and, and observing um, within reason. Um, but I, I think that there's more action involved in being an ally um, than maybe others are willing to take on. But I, it's nice to see that people are really trying to figure that out and get being an ally wrong. Sometimes you're going to do something and that's not what somebody wants, but being open to failure uh, and trying to be an ally as well. Yeah. Can we talk about that, actually? Because I, I do think people want to try and I, I love to like give them the tools of like, it's OK to try and fail in this. Right. It's but to be open to, again, listening to say, I see, I see what you're doing, but maybe this would be better and not being defensive, just being open. And have you have you seen that either in your organization or life of like, how, how can people better take that like criticism or change? I don't know. How, how have you seen that play out? Feed, yeah. Thank you, Diana. <laughs> feedback. 
there's a vulnerability I think that's required and you kind of have to, and I, I, it makes people so uncomfortable. It makes me uncomfortable when you walk into a situation, you don't know what you're doing. It's terrifying. Um, so I, I think that's the part where I just try to identify as much as I can to help make the conversation a little bit more easy. But I think this was a year where I was like, you know what, maybe it's not going to be easy. <laughs> and that's mm -hmm. the part that I think, um, you know, our allies group helped me realize is like, you know, it's not like this is the first time this stuff has come up. This is not the first time we've had these conversations. Like this is not a new conversation, but now we're being forced to care in an environment which is extremely unique and really challenging. So the empathy is already there, hopefully, uh, since we're all in this together. And I, I think that that's made it more productive. And now our job is not to forget about it once everything goes back to the normal or the new normal. Um, Whatever that might be. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you mentioned um, the allies group at, at C-Space, and I've been loving seeing the posts on LinkedIn and hearing from you again in our Diversity, Equity, Inclusion Committee. Can you talk about, like, tell our audience, like, what has kind of sprung to life at C-Space um, from an allyship perspective? Yeah, so at C-Space, you know, we're really focused on putting the human and the customer at the center of the work that we do. And I think that that and our values uh help us kind of focus in on this. Uh, whereas, you know, many more, you know, corporate top down organizations might struggle because there's no room for that. It's business. Like that's it. There's no human component. Like it's just, it's such a different world. So I think first of all, we were starting with a culture and, and with people who really are strongly passionate about it. Um, and, and we could see this when we brought in Doug Melville, who is our, uh, he used to be the uh, chief diversity officer at TBWA. Um, he did a session on the language of diversity um, about a, over a year ago at C-Space. And it was, a, you know, all company, um, you know, we did it virtually, we were in person at our Boston office. And he was the one at kind of a, a little mixer that we had afterwards to say, you guys should just do like an allies group or something. Wouldn't that be cool? And of course, the idea was planted. And then with the people and ops team with, you know, Phil, our chief um, operations people officer and Maria, um, who focuses on our HR uh, team, uh, and both have a strong history of, of in this space. They were the ones with me who really helped do this. In addition to, you know, the 2030 allies who really wanted a group where we could focus on this. So that's where it started. And, and it, you know, it was really informal at first. We were just sharing articles, books, um, you know, stuff that would come up with clients, um, stuff that would come up, you know, with employees. Um, you know, we, we did Pride Month. We did uh, Black History Month for the first time this year. Um, and, and really, we were able to leverage a volunteer uh, army uh, to help focus on this. Um, but then, of course, after, um, you know, the George Floyd protests, the floodgates really opened. And now the allies group is over a third of the company um, wow. happened kind of quickly. Wow. Uh, and, and, and it wasn't easy. You know, we really decided to focus internally first. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we did a DEI day uh, focus. It was mandatory company wide um, on August 4th. Uh, focusing on unconscious biases and empathy and breakout sessions. Uh, we did unconscious bias training with Dr. Marks. Um, all of our, our leadership members attended that. 
Um, we also nominated a global DEI board, which was chosen by the allies group. So a very democratic process of who the allies wanted to represent them. Uh, and then we did do a pay equity analysis, um, which again, we're you know, still kind of like zeroing in on kind of tweaking and what we need to focus on. But that was like a definitely a good indication of what where we're doing well and where we have some areas for improvement. Uh, we also uh, created a, a DEI toolkit um, to help our client team start having these conversations with them because, of course, they were all like, what do we do? And some were ahead of the game. You know, some were ready, some, you know, but but we really did want to make sure that our consultants felt empowered to, to help their clients. And we're still working on that. And luckily we had a ton of resources too. Um, so we have um, our, you know, intranet page where we share, you know, former events that we did. And uh, we also have photos and uh, how to be an ally. You know, we have, we have some of that content already. And then we did some events with our clients. So we did a better why conference with them um, where we had, you know, McDonald's and um, we had Wells Fargo and, and some of our other clients. So that was really, really productive. And, and so basically it was really just moving the allies group from phase one to phase two, where we're really trying to scale it. So we weren't starting nice. from zero, which was awesome. Yeah, for, you know, you're here at a moment where you have like a third of your company in the allies group, which is just like amazing. Like that feels huge to me. Um, how do you keep everyone kind of like mobilized and, and actively part of it? And, and do you have any kind of conversations or expectations of folks who join the ally group? Yeah, so I think that that's the piece that we are, you know, still kind of refining of like what we want the allies group to be in 2021. Um, but I think that, you know, the, the things that helped us were one, having a really strong foundation and a clear vision. So we weren't running, you know, 100 miles per hour in the wrong direction um, and being very clear about what we were focusing on and what we weren't focusing on. Um, and also just really understanding and being able to articulate the purpose, which was easy for us. But if you're from a non-marginalized group, eh, maybe it's not as much of a priority. It's not on your everyday. And now you're kind of being <laughs> dragged, kicking and screaming, if I can say so, to, to focus on something that's really uncomfortable during a pandemic virtually. So it's just it's just been madness to try and navigate that. Um, but we we were able to really make sure that the timing was right, which is also important, um, and really had tons of allies and advocates, and also leadership representing our interests, which was really crucial. Um, so you know, our, our president and our CEO met with us um, multiple times, bared their souls, which is not easy for anybody. And, and we did the same. Um, you know, and I think that that helped kind of make the conversation conversations more productive, even though they were very difficult to have. Um, we also tried to make sure we were thinking of, you know, who else needs to know what's going on, who else wants to be involved, um, how can we anchor this to metrics so that when we decide there's something else we need to prioritize, we can make sure we're staying the course. Um, so those are kind of the, the things that I think we focused on, as well as continuing to be um, cross-functional, um, you know, and really making sure everybody is represented in that group, not just the people of color at C-Space, not just, um, you know, leadership at C-Space. We wanted to make sure that it was balanced and we continue to invite anyone who wants to be part of that. So I, I feel like those are the big pieces uh, and really just embracing uh, trying out pilots. Um, I love a good pilot because it's like, we might fail. 
<laughs> like that's okay. It, it's a pilot. They they might fail. Um, so I think having that concept as well to try stuff out and be less afraid and give people permission to fail was is why it just has worked so beautifully. And there's still more to do, but um, we've come a long, long way. Um, one of the things that kind of comes up a lot is the importance of leadership, right? And having leadership on board, and um, kind of that friction between like the vulnerability and the I don't knowness of doing this kind of work and the need for like stability and knowledge that comes with like kind of traditional leadership roles and the way that people see the way that leaders should portray themselves. Do you think like part of doing this work and part of getting leadership on board is going to be also kind of breaking down our ideas of like what good leadership looks like? Absolutely. I mean, I hope that this experience is helping to shape what we define as good leaders. Um, and, and I think that it's it's been hard to see. And now, see, I'm going off the cuff again. So here we go. <laughs> but I think um, in terms of leaders being ready for this, I mean, people should be furious. Like we, we, we should have been more ready for a lot of the things that we're dealing with right now. And so it's been, I think you have to, to have these conversations, you have to get over your own frustration of why weren't you ready? Why weren't we ready? Um, and you know, I had to be ready. I always have to be ready. So it's like, you just, you start and then you get mad and that's not productive. So I think the, the, just focusing on the simple pieces of, um, there's no one size fits all to have these conversations. I think looking at your, your company, your culture, your values, politics involved, um, look at the geography too of the issues. Cause we're not like the UK. Um, we have a global team, uh, allies team, uh, uh, America, uh, sorry, allies group focused in the UK and their issues are a little bit different. And it's been really cool to learn what they're dealing with, what we're dealing with and how we can work together, you know, and then you have also unconscious bias. Like we all have it it's there. And, and then you have the context of the pandemic and virtual. So having these conversations is not, this is not the optimal experience to have them. So how do you approach it uh, based on the situation going on? So I think taking your ego out of the equation is like the biggest one because that's your ego may lead you astray. And I'm, I'm saying this cause I made all of these mistakes. Like every piece of advice I am trying to offer, I have made a serious mistake. So just please know that. Um, and I think being honest with yourself first and then with the other person to establish that trust is important. Cause if you haven't been honest with yourself about your views on what's going on, how you feel about it, you're not going to be able to have a productive conversation with somebody else. Um, especially now. Um, and then I think it's just, you know, having the emotional intelligence. So, you know, they might come in at you hot, pissed off, like super, super blunt. You might not be used to that. It might be a bad day. How do you deescalate and kind of deal with that so that the conversation is productive and doesn't do more damage? Um, and then I think just having empathy, understanding what the core issue is, what are we really trying to solve? Because I feel like at the end of the day, we're all trying to get to the same things. Like, we're really not trying to do a whole bunch of create, like, we're all trying to get to the same spot. Um, and then I think bonus points for like, 
you know, the format of the, the conversation and like, you know, are you approaching leadership on a Monday right after Thanksgiving? Probably not the best day to have that conversation. Um, you know, try to try to make sure it's 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 in a, a safe place. If it's a platform of 40 people, that also might not be the best way to have the initial conversation because um, people can feel really defensive if they're put on blast in a, with, with a group of people. So the, that's what I've learned. I'm sure that there's more, but that's how I've approached it. I think I mean one more question I want to ask, and this is something that we like very briefly touched based, uh, touched based on a, a couple of days ago now, which is the idea that some people find even just like the term allyship to be like not useful anymore, or that maybe allyship isn't the way to go, or there are all of these kind of conversations about it. And one of the main things that I keep hearing about in that sphere of conversation is the idea that allyship almost implies that it's not your problem, right? That it's like, I'm going to help someone else solve their problem because I agree that it shouldn't be happening. Um, and that that can get, that can be difficult, especially when we're talking about problems that are systemic that uh, folks are benefiting from and are being harmed by and, you know, X, Y, and Z forever. Um, so what are, what are your thoughts on kind of the idea of, of ownership around kind of issues and what it means to partner on a pro on a problem that isn't your problem or that doesn't directly affect you. Yeah, I think just having more conversations about it and really taking time to reflect, like it's been cool to see uh, like see white allies doing impactful, meaningful work. Um, you know, for example, we have, um, you know, some employees who are volunteering and doing pro bono work with uh, big sister, um, big brother, big sister. And um, they did a uh, webinar focusing on just their experience and how the pandemic has impacted them. And it was really interesting to hear some of them talk about how they are still conflicted about a lot of this. And they're still kind of trying to process white privilege and well, why is this my fault? Like what, I didn't do this. I don't believe in this. Why am I being held responsible? And I think it's until you understand the research and the foundations of how it impacts the day-to-day -day experience, um, you know, and looking at social capital and your connections and thinking about how you're surviving this pandemic, I think you just need to reflect on, well, if it isn't your problem, whose problem is it? And I, I think, and this is just like, I know not a lot of people agree necessarily might agree with this, but, you know, Jonathan Kozel's book, Savage Inequalities, was the one that woke me up my sophomore year at Boston College. I realized that there's simply some people that do not care about people of color, about people in education who, who are not well off, who, who need help. And that was a hard pill to swallow. I was like, well, how could people not care? How is that possible? Yeah. Right. So I think once you understand, and I think that our, our um, unconscious bias training with Dr. Marks did an excellent job too, where he, he was like, your homework is to view a news channel that is the opposite of your views for five minutes, as long as you can take. <laughs> um, and, and it was, and I remember also Diane Hessen's work on uh, with the Boston Globe on looking at, um, you know, uh, Trump supporters and just she had to look at both sides. And as a researcher, we often have to look at both sides. So how can you tell the story authentically without inserting your biases as much as possible and, and give them the story? Because everybody, you know, they have a voice and it's our job to share that voice within reason. Um, but that's the part that I think 
we struggle with is learning the other side and then being able to respond. That's, that's tough. Still learning how to do that. Yeah, for sure. Especially when kind of it, in all, on all sides, right. It's going to make you confront your own humanity and like in your connection to it and how it is that that will affect the way that you speak. Right. Um, Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of, a lot of what you're saying is making me think about the ideas, you know, I think a lot about fairness, uh, especially, you know, working with little kids and then when you work with teenagers and then I think almost especially when you work with adults, like there's a lot of conversations about like what is fair and the ideas around kind of like equity tends to feel unfair to folks who are not getting the same, let's say, accommodations as someone else. Um, and I think even that you see the way that those conversations happen from all sides and the, and kind of understanding that, that like that nugget of like, what is fairness versus what is equity and like the idea of equity and equality and all of these terms, um, doing that self-reflection makes a big difference into kind of understanding why it is that you're so like upset about the idea of someone else asking you to take responsibility for something that you're not, you know, quote unquote, directly responsible for. Yeah, I think that, um, and I hope you'll like this example, given your educational background. Um, I think that that's where I started getting mad because I would see, you know, with continuing adult learners, you know, education, and I still see it now, it's focused on traditional learners, um, you know, perfect students, perfect lives, polished, no obligations, you know, just they're going to get in and out in four years, they're going to get all A's, everything's going to be great. <laughs> and and the, the truth is with continuing ed, we knew that you know, working professionals, international students, um, you know, single parents, financially struggling, like the one size fits all doesn't work with with education. Um, and and non-traditional learners are now the norm. They're not, um, you know, the outlier that we have to like maybe think about. So, um, you know, faculty um, advisors in theory are there to support them. But I mean, there were times where I was like, I need a social worker because I'm dealing with things that are extremely sensitive um, cases that I'm not trained to handle. So, and you see the advisors really struggling too, and, and advising is so challenging and, you know, the pay isn't great all the time. So I just was getting frustrated with that. And, and so a lot of us were trying to move forward with like a virtual mentorship program, really difficult to pull off because of the resources and logistics involved. But we were able to build finally after several attempts and failures, um, a, a virtual uh, peer alumni and industry mentorship program. And we found a really great company um, called the Mentor Collective uh, that we worked with to scale it because they do all the matching and they do all the training, uh, really, really cute app. Um, and they understand education, they understand adult learners, and they like messy students. Um, so their framework was based on kind of that approach of, of how you support international students and students of color. Um, and, and Daniel Aldridge's work I highly recommend you read it, especially now bonding, bridging and linking social capital in a disaster uh, is really what we (laughs) use to inspire our theoretical framework uh, for how we approached uh, that program. Um, So, you know, students are struggling with not having money, learning disabilities, um, you know, single parents working full time. uh, So we felt like that was a really applicable example. And now it's just it's doing so well and it helps so many students. And we saw it reduce isolation. And I'm like, this stuff works like 
like let's just do it more <laughs> yeah so sure. yeah we see a lot i mean there's so much data out already about how women in particular have been affected and um by the pandemic and the idea of even just something as simple as childcare, right and like schooling from home and how that is going to affect your ability to like be on camera at noon to one when you're also trying to feed your kids and do all of these other things and so that's another conversation where you're seeing people really think about like, okay, do we actually does do we actually need to rethink the way that we schedule meetings and the way that we expect people to be present? And is it okay to just have your headphones in so that you can like hear what's going on and not actively participate that day? Like what are all of the things and all the choices that we can make to break away from the ways that we've traditionally done something if they're no longer working? And, and let's be honest, like you've said a million times, Leah, they were never really working. <laughs> um, but now nope. they're like so <laughs> obviously not working. I have to teach uh, our kids? What? Yeah. what? <laughs> uh, so, you know, that's like a whole different, whole different thing. And that is an equity issue, right? Like these are one of those things where we don't think about that often um, when we think about like what diversity, equity, and inclusion is. But that is an equity issue, right? You want to make sure that everyone, all of these different folks, no matter what their family dynamics are, no matter what their personal dynamics are, they have the access to everything they need to actually succeed and do the best that they can. Right. It's great for the work. It's great for you. It's great for you at work. It's great for the people who are actually doing it. Like there's very little downside. Everyone wins. <laughs> everyone wins. Um, okay. Looks like we have a question coming live from Aiden. Awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. I'm really, uh, really enjoying it so far. And it's such an important topic. Um, so my question, what, what I've seen is that often when organizations are waking up to the need to focus on diversity, equity, and inclusion related topics, um, they're typically pretty late to the game <laughs> and are, will find themselves confronted with nearly limitless opportunities to improve in some way. There's lots lots to do. Um, so what would your advice be on how to prioritize where, where they should get started? Some of the things are going to take a lot longer, right? And they're going to they're take a lot of work and a lot of time and a lot of commitment and a lot of investment. And you're not going to be able to get to them and do them effectively in the first like month or two months or a year of what it is that you're working on. Um, but one of the first places that I always recommend folks start is to look at what they're doing that's actively harmful and try to pull back on those things first, right? Um, instead of, I mean, while you're working on things that are going to add more equity into a space, right? So like, what is it that you can do that is actually a actively harmful? And maybe you didn't know, or maybe you did know, but you didn't really care or whatever it is, and pull those back um, before or while you're preparing to do everything else. Yeah, I mean, I, I know we've talked a little bit about this, Aiden, but I think the the piece that helped helped us connect the dots a little bit is just that we're we're a consulting firm. We focus on research and our clients and our customers, and so we need to be nimble no matter what. And so, why wouldn't our consultants be able to speak? at least at a baseline level about how to move forward with this and how to engage on these topics. Um, what a deficiency if you can't do that. I mean, you won't be able to navigate the world or at least the future world. So I think being able to articulate it that way was helpful. Um, and we did have some funny examples uh, about our sales team, but you know, who would you want to focus on selling black products? And we're like, everybody should be able to if, if they do the upskilling that they need. And back to, you know, what we've talked about of education being the priority, just if you focus on the learning and what you don't know, and being at a proficiency level, that's at least acceptable to survive, like, 
I feel like that's a reasonable ask. Um, and then, of course, it would be wonderful to see you actually being more proactive and actually trying to make change. Um, some of our uh, leadership members are doing more volunteer work, um, you know, with companies like Bottom Line and others. And, and mentorship is a great way to provide social capital. Pro bono consulting is a great way. And you're also learning. You're getting more exposure. Um, so supporting Black-owned businesses, there's so much you can do. Um, but it, it does take time. And that's the part that I think I'm struggling with the most because the world is taking time. So the companies are going to take more time. Like it just, it's a whole, it takes a long time to turn the ship around, but we're, we're getting better. It's something that I hear a lot from folks and just kind of hearing the way that Leah talks about this as well is the idea that, oh, well, companies don't want to invest in learning right? Like they don't want to invest. They don't think that learning is important. And my response is always like, yeah, they do. Or else they wouldn't require you to have degrees. Mm-hmm. Right? Like you can't pick and <laughs> choose when, like, you. that's the thing. It's like a lot of times it's easy to pick and choose when you find something important. But like, obviously we believe that there are things that you have to know in order to do a job well, and you're expected to know them. And if you can't do them, then you're either trained, right? Like you're trained to do them, right? Like this is how that works. And this is the same thing. Like you have a set of skills that you need to learn, you need to pick up and you need to be invested in to do that. Great. Diana and Leah, thank you so much for sharing your perspectives, your thought leadership. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having us. It's fun. Yeah, it's always fun. To check out Leah's work and some amazing designs and campaigns and lots of great stuff, check out cspace.com. And we're going to take a quick break and we'll return with our weekly dose of good design. Now it's time for our weekly dose of good design, where we each share an example of good design that has impacted us or others in a meaningful way. I will go first. So I'm definitely not a chess player. I don't think I've actually ever played chess, which is, I don't know, it just never, never came up. Uh, I I have not watched The Queen's Gambit yet, but I plan to. Uh, But I know everyone's talking about it. Everyone's talking about chess, getting into chess. It's great. I'm happy for everyone. Uh, The chess boom has me thinking about one of my all-time favorite designs. It is a chess set from 1922, designed by Joseph Hartwig, a member of the Bauhaus, which is the renowned German art school, famous for its early approach to modern product, graphic, architecture, design, and more. Uh, The set is beautiful. It is made of wood. Each piece embodies sort of like two levels of like abstraction and utility. Each piece is sort of like a geometric abstraction of a traditional chess piece. So like the pawns are just like very simple wooden cubes. And then the king and the queen are like cubes with like with like a little hat on them. Um, and so you can just look at the pieces if you know what a chess set looks like and be like, I know what these pieces are and what they do, even though they're extremely simple and geometric. Um, so yeah, even at a first glance. And then probably the best part of it is that each piece is designed to show what moves that piece can make. So um, I guess an example, again, I'm not a chess player, but knights are an L shape, right? So you're like, oh, they can do the L. Uh, and bishops are uh, this like simple X shape. And so, I don't know, it's just like the epitome of form follows function. And one of my professors told me that like the best designs don't need an instruction manual. And this is like a design where like the instruction manual is like designed into the actual game. So it's pretty great. I love it. I've always wanted one, even though I don't play it. I just, I'll just put it over there. 
Um, it's gorgeous and certainly celebrated as one of the best product designs ever. And I couldn't agree more. So that's mine. Why don't we go to Diana next? Yeah, absolutely. Mine actually comes courtesy of um, our design producer, Ryan. Uh, he shared this article with me and I kind of went down the rabbit hole of reading all of the other articles on this website, which is called, um, <laughs> I apologize for this title, <laughs> uh, pudding.cool. Uh, which is basically a website all of that tells in-depth stories through um, visual, like visual storytelling, like basically articles, but they're told much more visually than normal kind of like written uh. articles usually are. And the one he sent me, uh, I think for all of those, all of those of you who know me, is predictable, predictably about K-pop. Uh, and this one is <laughs> about why K-pop groups are so big, which is like one of the first questions people have when you see lineups of K-pop groups. You're like, that one has 33 people in it. And that's not an exaggeration. Like that one has 33 people in it. Um, and it's a really wonderful website. But this particular this particular piece talks like really maps the history of K-pop starting when it started in 1992 and it's all these like really wonderful visuals and data and so for those of you who like me when you're reading a piece are always like yeah you're saying the words like this is how it happened like you're giving me your interpretation of the data but I would always like to see the data for myself immediately after reading your interpretation this is a great site for that so they'll say things like as you know as time went on you see that groups got larger as they started to have more roles in the groups and you're looking at it and you're like ah yes here are the first 33 like groups and here are the next 42 and how it is that those work and it's just really nice to have that combination of interpretation and raw data presented really beautifully and in a way that's easy um, to understand so that's mine love it we'll post a link of that for sure <laughs> i'll check that out thank you mm -hmm. all right leia I'm glad I'm in the presence of nerds. <laughs> Makes me 100%. feel at home. Um, so I'll I'll give um, an example focused on um, actually it's a brand called Sonder. Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it's kind of like the best of both worlds with hotels and Airbnbs and. You know, I, I was introduced to the brand this year when a colleague of mine, Jill, uh, we were nominated for an award and we went to London and met our team there. And it's just it's a long time to be away from home. And, you know, she found this place right across from our office and we freaked out like the, the goal and how they design it. And it's really cool to learn about the, the designer and kind of her approach. But it's it's meant to make you feel at home. And and I, mm. I know that's a simple concept, but think about a hotel. Like it's like so industrial. And it's like if you could need a bigger reminder that you're not at home, like put somebody in, you know, 200 square feet, <laughs> you could barely right. fit, you know, you, you already had to fly and like no space. Um, and especially traveling during this time, which has been really difficult. I had to go home for a funeral to Minneapolis. And it was so nice to be able to socially distance safely from my family until I could test negative and then have them over for sleepovers and like cook and, you know, work remotely. And it was just so much easier. And I didn't have to talk to anybody. Um, everything was designed beautifully on the app. Everything was sanitized. If I needed anything, it was there in a second. They just would bring it to the door and like leave. It was just, it was wonderful. And Airbnb is kind of like you're, you're at somebody else's house. So you're trying not to break stuff. Mm -hmm. And I'm, 
Yep. I'm going to break something. Like I'm going to, Oh it's I'm, just, yeah, definitely. So it's nice to be able to not feel like you're breaking someone else's things and living in someone else's house. It's a, it's a very nice option. Very cool. Very cool. Thank you both. Those are great. They're the full range of design. I love it. That's our show. Thank you again to Diana and Leah for joining us and for this awesome conversation and to our live podcast audience. Thank you. Like I said, we'll post links to the resources we discussed on our episode page. Visit designmuseumeverywhere.org and click on podcast. As always, you can find us and follow us on social media. We're on Twitter at design underscore museum. And on Instagram, we're at design museum everywhere. Plus we're on LinkedIn and Facebook as well. This episode was written and produced and edited by the amazing Amor Yates with production support from Ryan Flom. Our theme music is Orange Sunset by One Wave for the whole team here at Design Museum Everywhere. Thank you for listening and we'll talk again next week.